Here we are in our new facility. Some of you, I guess, today is your first Sunday here. And we're supposed to be rejoicing. And I'm going to speak on persecution. (laughs) It was what came next. John Bunyan was a nonconformist preacher in the 17th century, England. He was imprisoned for the crime of preaching the gospel and sound theology. He did not conform to the Church of England during a time where, by law, they had to conform. He was imprisoned for two periods of six years, from 1660 to 1672. Later, he was released from prison by the Act of Pardon, after which he became a faithful pastor in Bedford. He was a good man. He was a good pastor, a great writer. He was not a rabble-rouser. He just preached Scripture. Why would God allow a good man like that to suffer, to be separate from his family, which was poor in the first place? Our faith acknowledges that God is sovereign in all things and that God is always good and righteous in all of his deeds. So we believe that God always has good purposes for even the things that we count as wicked and evil that happen in our lives. One fruit of Bunyan's suffering is that from his experiences, he was able to grow as a writer and wrote some things in prison. And then later he wrote that famous work called Pilgrim's Progress, which has been a blessing to the faith of so many people. A book that some assert is the most widely read book in the world except for the Bible, or at least has been through the years. And translated, one website said, into 200 languages. So God does use persecution for good. He does. Today, the church of Jesus and godly preachers are still being persecuted. There are various uh, ministry, modern ministries that uh, keep a watch over worldwide Christian persecution to try to help inform the greater body of Christ, the public here in America about what is going on. Some of these organizations will define what it means to be a Christian more broadly than the Scripture does. It includes those that are cultural Christians, so their numbers are going to be skewed, but the information and the service that they provide for the greater church is valuable nonetheless. Open Doors USA, a nonprofit organization, is one of those. They point out that, quote, the Middle East accounts for a majority of countries ranked in the top 10 for extreme persecution of Christians, extreme. To count down the top 10, here we go. And you'll see mostly are in the Middle East area. Number 10 is Eritrea, 9, Yemen, 8, Iran, 7, Iraq, 6, Syria. The fifth worst is Sudan. Then comes Pakistan. Afghanistan is third, and Somalia is second, and the worst is North Korea. They also wrote this, according to the Christian advocacy group, one in 12 Christians today in the world experiences high, very high, or extreme persecution for their faith. Nearly 215 million Christians face high persecution, with 100 million of those living in Asia. 
Still quoting, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, an academic research center that that monitors worldwide demographic trends in Christianity, estimates that between the years 2005 and 2015, 900,000 Christians were martyred. 900,000. It's an average of 90,000 a year. That's mind-blowing. We're kind of insulated from those numbers and those experiences. It almost doesn't seem real, does it? The Washington Times noted, quote, the State Department keeps an accounting of more than 60 countries where religious discrimination is practiced and encouraged. In many of these places, Islam is the dominant and sometimes official religion, and affiliated Muslim organizations persecute religious minorities, sometimes Jews, and particularly Christians, end quote. Another website claims, quote, in 41 of the 50 worst nations for persecution, Christians are being persecuted by Islamic extremists. Islam is not a religion of peace. A January 6, 2017 Fox News report also confirmed that report. It wrote, quote, Christians continue to be the most persecuted group across the globe in 2016, according to a study, end quote. On July 22, 2015, the New York Times report said, quote, is this the end of Christianity in the Middle East? ISIS and other extremist movements across the region are enslaving, killing, and uprooting Christians with no aid in sight. Well, that's a little bit dated since ISIS has been beaten back to a large degree. Persecution in America, if we can call it that, can hardly be compared to what's happening there. Nevertheless, it is on the rise. Franklin Graham in his Samaritan's Purse website writes, well, it's written here uh, on that website, not a quote from him, Christians across our nation are experiencing increased hardship, targeting, and persecution because of the stand they are taking for biblical principles. It then goes on to mention some of the high-profile cases you've been hearing about in the news. A small bakery in Oregon shut down for biblical beliefs. In Indiana, a small pizzeria. In New Mexico, a photographer. In Washington State, a florist was sued for discrimination by the government because she could not in good conscience create custom arrangements for a same-sex ceremony, end quote. And then they quote uh, Franklin Graham, and he says, I believe we're going to see persecution in this country. We've already seen many laws that have been passed that restrict our freedom as Christians. I believe it's going to get worse. We do have a problem in this country, and we are losing our religious freedom, and we're losing it a little bit day by day, end quote. Well, I am not a good prognosticator. I don't know the future. Um, But like you, I can certainly tell which way the wind is blowing, and it's not blowing in our favor. The worldly church will always find a way to compromise and fit in and say, that's okay, we'll just fit in. They'll call it love, but those that really want to follow the Bible and what it says and the moral standards that God has, well, they're going to have to face the brunt of this. So we need to be poised and we need to be prepared. Persecution of Christians, of course, is nothing new. We know that anyone who comes to Christ in faith needs to be ready for it because Jesus said anyone who comes to me needs to pick up their what? Their cross, right? And follow me. Cross was a form of execution in Roman society. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. Persecution comes and accompanies those who follow Christ. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul told us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12? Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
We all get put down, we all get laughed at, we get excluded, we get marginalized due to our faith to some extent. But still, why does God allow it? What good comes from persecution? I would like to avoid it. I would like to flee somewhere. I don't want it. But is there good that comes from it? As we return to the book of Acts today, and you can turn to Acts chapter 4, we are confronted with the very first time the Christian church was persecuted, and then start to glean some lessons that we can gain from that for our faith. Acts 4, we're going to read verses 1 to 22, and we'll probably have a multi-parter here as we um, absorb these principles. Acts 4, starting from verse 1, it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent... When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name... This man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, after they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because... They were all glorifying God for what had happened, for the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. The narrative of chapter 4 is a continuation of chapter 3, so we're dealing with the fallout of the healing of the lame man by Peter and John as they were going into the temple in Jerusalem to pray that day. You may remember that healing was a notable miracle. It was done instantaneously by the power of God. It was no sleight of hand tricks. It was no go home and maybe you'll learn to walk or anything like that that people are told today. It was a genuine miracle. Um, It was instantaneous. It was complete. It was supernatural. It was not a faith healing. It was a healing by the power of God. And it was a startling display of supernatural power 
so that people would be able to turn their attention and listen to the apostles. The miracles that were done in Acts were done. Clearly, the gift of miracles and the gift of healing and the gift of casting out demons were all done to point to the apostles so people would listen to their testimony. That's very clearly how they're used in the book of Acts, and that's very clearly the intent of those spiritual gifts. And it worked. It worked tremendously here in this passage. The healing was so incredible, it drew a crowd in that temple, And Peter gave the second apostolic speech of the book of Acts, and he testified to Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Israel. And he reminded Israel of their promised future as a nation and why they need to repent so they can experience that future. And the Jewish people seemed to be soaking it in. They were riveted on the things that Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, was preaching that day. Remember also that up until this point, the church has enjoyed great favor with all the people. The unbelievers of Jerusalem thought very highly of the church. They were not even called Christians at this stage. This was stated back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. The growing church in Jerusalem, it was mushrooming, it was, it was growing dramatically. It was a dynamic body of believers. They gathered together in the large group in the temple, but also house to house. They took meals together. They had gladness and sincerity of heart. They showed love to one another. They evangelized the lost wherever they could. They worshiped God genuinely. They deepened an apostolic doctrine. All of it was generated by their commitment to Bible teaching. They had favor with the people. The people were drawn to them. But then comes chapter 4, like a fly in the ointment. And chapter 4 is the first confrontation the church has with the Jewish leadership. And it's the first persecution of Christians since the start of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And Peter and John are at the center of what occurred, this first persecution. And we believe that that was by the Lord's design. These two men were ready. They were prepared for persecution. What we see here, here in these two men is an encouragement to all of us, Christians everywhere who will experience some kind of persecution, whether it's formal and severe kind of persecution or just those that get ostracized by their family because of their faith or ridiculed at work or not given a promotion or whispered about or slandered in the corners. We see John and Peter, they're submitted to God. They believe that God will lead them. They believe it's worth it, what they're doing, and they're empowered by God's Holy Spirit. Furthermore, we see the irrational injustice of the leaders and the officials in Jerusalem. We can easily see that lack of sense on their part. Don't ever speak in the name of Jesus who just healed a lame man. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Same irrational spirit is in leaders anywhere that persecution breaks out against the church. Christians are not lawbreakers. (laughs) Christians are not unruly. They're not known for that. They're typically more self-controlled and more reasonable and more reliable in work and patriotic, hardworking. Christians are often the moral fiber of a society. So when they get persecuted, you know that there's something wrong going on in the leadership. Hatred, jealousy, evil motives, power clinging. For the apostles, this would end up being the first of two confrontations with the Jewish hierarchy in Jerusalem. The second is going to be in chapter 5, and that one will result in physical punishment for them. So chapter 4 might be considered a preliminary hearing. The actions of the Jewish leadership are causing all of this, the Sanhedrin. They control the narrative. As you read it, you realize it's their actions. Uh, the narrative records what actions they took. They moved to arrest and then to interrogate and then to confer and then to render a judgment with threats. Yet behind the scenes, God is always there. God never abandons His church. 
Christ is there among them and he is in control of all of this. He is allowing the persecution. Behind the whole narrative, we perceive that providential hand of God allowing the persecution to come, never being the author of evil, but always in control of the evil that is foisted against God's people. Why? For his own good purposes. For his own good purposes. Jesus always stands with his church, persecuted or not. To the persecuted church in Smyrna, book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus spoke to them and said, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, he told them, and I will give you the crown of life. So why didn't Jesus just stop the devil from persecution? Because he has his own good purposes for it. God does care for his saints who are persecuted. He knows what is going on and he works his good purposes out of evil actions. But you ask, what are those good purposes? Today and the next couple of times, probably we're going to see that when God wills persecution for the church, he also empowers his people in a very unique way to glorify the name of Jesus, to have a unique testimony at a time where they're being most pressured. God's glory comes out the most and their faith comes out the most and Christ is glorified the most. Strangely, when the church goes through prolonged periods of peace, and by the way, that did happen even during the time of Roman rule. We, the church was not persecuted for 300 years straight before Constantine. There were times where there was great peace and the church got fat and lazy, as many people feel has happened to the American church. When we get that prolonged period of peace, maybe we're not as earnest in our devotion to Christ as we should be. With persecution comes cleansing comes more of an acute awareness that we need God and reliance upon Him, but also comes greater effectiveness in ministry to the world. Don't misunderstand, persecution is not good. It is evil. I never pray for persecution. Any more than I would pray for a disease and I would pray for violent crimes to happen to my family or for natural disasters to wipe out some area, I wouldn't pray for it and neither should you. The Bible never encourages us to pray for evil to happen. That's just warped thinking. And I will vote against anyone who will not protect Christ's church or not protect the lives of the innocent. But God has a way of turning evil and disaster, yes, persecution, into good. That's just who He is as a good and a sovereign God. And so we read that here in Acts how Christ was glorified and the word of God spread and the church was built up despite hostile actions by those in authority. Three hostile actions by the officials and our unfolding of these principles will follow these actions. The first action is the arrest. The second is their interrogation. And then the third is the threat that they give to Peter and John. The arrest, the interrogation, and the threat. Today, the arrest. Look at verses 1 through 4 again if you focus on that. Verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. So the setting is still in the temple and the, the temple police are there, the temple guard, they have charge and rule there, and they assert their authority. 
They interrupt the words that were being spoken back in chapter 3. Look back there a little bit at the last two verses so you can remember how Peter ended his sermon. Verse 25, he said, It is you, the Jews, who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 26, For you, Israel, first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Jesus was for Israel. Jesus was for the blessing of Israel, for the kingdom of Israel, to bring about the fulfillment of what the prophets had prophesied. Peter was preaching that. He was preaching the resurrection of Jesus. He was preaching repentance of sins for Israel. He made it clear that it was the name Jesus that healed the lame man. The power was in Jesus, not in him. John was not silent either. If you look carefully, it says that they were both speaking. So right as they were speaking, the temple guard breaks in and breaks it all up. And they assert their control over the situation in the temple. And they did not just bring a couple of temple cops, by the way. They brought a full entourage. They thought about this. They got all together. They were bothered by this. They organized themselves. They got their ducks in a row, and they came, and they did this shrewdly. There are renowned officials responsible for the holy temple. It says the priests were there. They're composed of the Levites. All of the people generally held the priests in high esteem. The priests were a priesthood that was appointed by God. The Levites, they were expected to be in the temple. But it also says there that the captain of the temple guard was there. He was a member of the high priestly family. He actually was second in command at the temple next to the high priest. Very powerful man. He would officiate at the daily temple offerings He led the entire temple police force. By the way, as further confirmation of the historical accuracy of Luke as a writer in the Bible, describing true first century events, true history, Josephus also makes mention of this man and his occupation, of this job. Then the Sadducees came along as well. Look at them. They're one of the more prominent sects in Judaism during the time of Christ, along with the Pharisees. There were also the Essenes, and and there were other groups. But the Sadducees were prominent. They claimed to have a following all the way back to Zadok, the high priest under Solomon the king, which was some 950 years before this time. Their name is related to the term righteousness, and so they were esteemed as well. And in comparison to the Pharisees, they were actually fewer in number, but they wielded more authority than the Pharisees did. They had positioned themselves very wisely in Jerusalem. They had benefited materially from the relationship that Israel had under Rome's control. Most of them were wealthy. They were landowners. Hey, they had it well, the Sadducees. In terms of their beliefs, they did not believe exactly as the Pharisees did. They kind of rejected some of the oral tradition or most of the oral tradition that the Pharisees had embraced. They really only believed the first five books of Moses should be considered Scripture and rejecting the rest of what we call the Old Testament. They did not believe in the existence of angels. They didn't believe in any any life after death. In some ways, they have similarities with modern theological liberals that dominate much of American religion and still have a lot of power in our country. It spills over into politics as well, and politics is used to control the people. Important for our understanding is that the Sadducees also denied, and I think you know this, the bodily resurrection from the dead. In fact, in Acts 23, 6 through 10, it states that very thing. But what was Peter doing? He was preaching Jesus Christ, what? Risen from the dead, right in their own backyard, right in their temple. Daryl Bach, in his commentary, points out what their concern would be. Quote, they react in part because in their view, the apostles' teaching 
could be politically, socially, and religiously destabilizing to their relatively good relationship with Rome. They didn't want that. So their primary concern seems to be to keep order translated, keep our good position and our lifestyle. In John 11, you see them conferring with one another in verses 47 and 48, and they express that very concern. I think it's Caiaphas who spoke there and said, what are we doing? You know, the Romans are going to come and take away our place if this Jesus keeps increasing. They'll take our place away if there's unrest in Israel. By way of application for us here in the modern world, Please understand that none of the gains that the church experiences as it preaches the Word of God and people come to listen to the Word of God and lives get changed, none of that will go unchallenged by those in authority. Just like back then, evil men often think they're doing the right thing. They're really just pawns of Satan. Satan is the adversary of the church. He opposes the church and he uses them to oppose the progress of the church. What does that say to us? We're in spiritual warfare. Can't see the warfare, can you? Can't hear the battle going on. Can't see it. Can't smell the smoke. But it's going on all the time. We're told that in Revelation. God says it's true. God says it's a reality. We've been given a whole whole list of armor we're supposed to wear in this spiritual battle. If we don't, we're going to be hurt. We're told in Ephesians 6.13, take up the full armor of God so you'll be able to, to resist in the evil day. There are days where, where the forces of evil come strongly against the church. It says there, you do everything that you can so you can stand firm. Don't lose ground. Don't lose ground when you're attacked. Just like Jesus said, don't fear. The Lord's going to throw some of you into prison. Be faithful to death. Don't fear. Stand your ground. So anyways, these Sadducees and the captain of the temple guard and the priest, they're very agitated at Peter and John. I mean, they are upset. Look at verse 2. Being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The preaching by the apostles is not just agitating. They're very opposed to it. They're probably angry. The apostles' constant teaching was pushing the limit for them. They're like, I guess, trying to act restrained or something like that. I mean, the church has been growing for a while, but they just can't take it anymore. There's two things agitated them the most. First, that the apostles were teaching the people. From their perspective, who gave these fishermen from Galilee the right to teach in our temple? What credentials do they have? What course of study did they finish? Who sanctioned them? Please notice again how elites, even in our own society today, think that they're the ones that ought to be on TV telling us what to think. They're the ones that confer degrees upon one another and say, this is what's true and this is what's real and this is what's scientific, and the rest of you fall in line. They really do believe they should be the ones leading us and controlling our minds and our thinking. Please resist them. They don't know reality. They appointed themselves. They're ignorant of truth. Well, it was that way back then. And then the second thing they're agitated about is that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. That appears to mean more than they were just preaching a resurrection. I mean, after all, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection and they they preached a resurrection. They butted heads with the Pharisees all the time over this. You can see some of that in Acts 23 and verse 6. But they were preaching a resurrection that was coming with Jesus as the power raising people from the dead. Christ himself was raised from the dead, and he would raise others from the dead. There'd be a resurrection that would come in Jesus. That's the crux of their concern. They shouldn't be teaching in the first place, and what they're teaching is all wrong. 
Jesus and the resurrection. You wonder if any of them sat down to say, I wonder if this is true. But if you know something can't happen before you investigate the evidence, then why investigate the evidence, right? It's not scientific, can't happen. Please notice again how the resurrection of Jesus is the focal point of apostolic preaching and evangelism. Sometimes you wonder, what should I be saying when I evangelize? You should always be saying something about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostles really did not put as much emphasis as explaining the effects of the cross when they were doing evangelistic preaching. I know in modern gospel outlines, the death of Christ usually gets the bulk of the explanation, but that's not true in the book of Acts in evangelism uh, preaching. It is the resurrection that is explained the most, and Jesus' ascension and his power and his name above all names. The cross is mentioned, but it's only mentioned in passing, in a sense, as they killed him. The atonement is never explained in these early evangelistic sermons to the Jews. Jesus is proclaimed as Messiah and Lord because God raised him from the dead. That's the message. And we should focus on the resurrection in our gospel presentations as they did. That's the main message that needs to get across. Paul did the same thing when he was speaking to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles in Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. He comes to the conclusion and he, doesn't, he does not explain the cross. He says, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's the great sign to the world that God has given. It's the focal point of evangelism. The resurrection is what these men were primarily witnessing about, but a resurrected Jesus would prove disastrous to the Sadducees and the priests who go along with them. It would discredit their leadership. They had to shut it down. Dr. John MacArthur notes, the Jewish leaders have executed Jesus as a blasphemer, and now the apostles were boldly proclaiming him as the resurrected Messiah. They no doubt viewed that as a direct attack on their authority. The resurrection is the one great sign for the world, and the church and the apostles put it front and center in their evangelistic preaching. From the Sadducees' point of view, this name Jesus just wouldn't die. They put him to death, and the name pops up everywhere. It's Jesus. You turn the corner, it's Jesus. You go down the street, it's Jesus. Now it's in the temple. It's in their back door. It's like they kicked the front door down almost and came in and said, Jesus, resurrected. And so verse 3, they laid hands on them. That means they arrested them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. The jail was likely located somewhere near the temple. No one knows exactly the location, but uh, they were locked up. Now, in one sense, Peter and John would really not be too surprised by being arrested because Jesus had told them in Luke 21, predicting this kind of thing would happen to his followers. He was talking about the end times then, but it happens to followers. And he said, Jesus said in Luke 21, verses 12 and 13, before all these things, talking about end times events, they will lay hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Jesus said, you're going to get arrested, and then you're going to stand before dignitaries, and they're going to listen, and you're going to be able in that situation to give a testimony. He even went on in that passage to say, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about you're in prison. You're not going to have a chance to think about it. God will, God will give you what to say in the moment. 
So we ask again, why does God allow persecution? Well, one reason is so that men full of the Spirit can give a great Christian testimony to dignitaries. How many times throughout church history did the gospel open up into a province or into a region or into a country because people were brought before dignitaries and kings and governors and people in authority and they believed that message because of their testimony? And so many more came to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because the authorities said, yeah, we like this message, let it in. Satan, of course, has his evil intents in all of this with malice for the people of God to discourage them. Look, you preached the gospel, you got arrested, God was not with you, he, he, you're in prison now, what an idiot you look like. I'm sure Satan would have wanted them to think those kinds of things. Satan means it for evil, God means it for what? For good, Right? Satan can't outsmart God. You might have a problem with God allowing those kinds of things to happen, but if you are living for God right now, if your life is about God, if you're wanting your life to count for God, if the way you think of yourself is that you're a servant of the Lord, then you will rejoice at every opportunity that God gives you to bear a testimony to glorify His name, right? That's why you have to make up your mind now, don't you? It's too late when the persecution comes and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, what am I going to do? You have to make up your mind now. Who are you living for? Are you living for the comforts of your home? They might take that away. Well, what, are you, what are you living for? The respect of your colleagues? They're not going to have respect for you. You believe a Bible and you believe it's literally true. Who are you living for? You're living for Christ, the glorious Christ, who's going to reign on this earth. Make up your mind now who you live for. Quit coming and just listening to the Word of God and and not believing it and not obeying and not growing. You need to grow in your faith. You grow in your faith, then you'll be prepared. And when the persecution comes, now you're a prepared instrument to bear a strong, faithful testimony to Jesus Christ. Don't just sit there. If you love Christ and you want to count for Christ, you cannot fly under the radar. won't happen. And I'm preaching at you, but I would love to fly under the radar. But it's not going to happen. Now, the Jews did not typically put people in jail as punishment. That's a whole other message. Putting people in prison doesn't really help all that much. They would, have, they would have restitution. They would have physical punishment. They would do those things. It seemed to work better. But they put them into jail, not as punishment, but really to hold them to the next day because the case is going to be heard the next day. Here we get that little notation that this healing and Peter's speech took place later in the day. The time of prayer was 3 p.m. That's when they, they arrived there, and then the sermon came after that. It looks like Luke had only summarized a more lengthy message by Peter. I like to point out when there's lengthier message in the Bible, when it just looks like it's a short message because people say you should be done in 15 minutes. I'm like, forget about it. I mean, Peter went longer. This is only a summary, guys. You've got to understand what you're reading there. So now it's 4 or 5 p.m. or so. This might have been a two-hour thing. But they got to spend the night in jail. They're going to have a hearing the next day. The Sanhedrin typically met daily, not on Sabbaths or on feast days, but they would convene daily. So they're going to convene the next day. They're going to hear the case, and it's going to go on. So they had some 12 hours in the prison to sit and think. You wonder what they were thinking. What were these two men thinking? Were they thinking Jesus is going to be with us? I think so. Were they confident the Lord was going to use them? I think so. I think these men were prepared. I think it shows in what they say next. But I'd like to ask you a question. What would you be thinking 
if you were imprisoned for the cause of Christ. You bore testimony. You stood up for Christ in your workplace. And I know it's not going to happen now. Well, we think it's not going to happen now. There was a lady in Kentucky that was in prison for standing up for her convictions in her job. And uh, she was put in prison for a while. What would you think? I'm a fool. What would your unsafe family come and say, what are you doing? You idiot. Just cooperate. Just say what you need to say. Would you be thinking that God abandoned you? Would you think this is so unfair? Would you be thinking who's going to take care of my family if this prolongs? After all, what wrong did they do? Did they steal something? No. Did they harass the worshipers at the temple, kind of yank them down and throw them down? No. Did they damage property? Nope. What did they do? They spoke, they healed a man, and then they told how they did it. (laughs) Terrible crime. You know, it's one thing to suffer when you do wrong. If you go to jail because you did wrong, you have a little bit of time to think, and I think probably you should think. You should contemplate, why did I do the wrong? What do I need to change about my life? It's a good time to sit and think. You're in jail, you did wrong, you deserve that. Quit blaming other people for it. Quit blaming your mother. Quit blaming other people. Just blame yourself. You're in jail. You're suffering for doing wrong. Maybe you're not going to go to jail. Maybe you're suffering for some other bad decision you made. That's your fault. Think about it. Quit passing the buck. Quit blaming somebody else for it. But what happens when you suffer for doing nothing wrong? Nothing wrong. Have you ever suffered for doing nothing wrong? It feels so unfair. They healed a lame man. That's it. And then they told people about the power of Jesus and his Messiahship and resurrection. Only evil people arrest men like that. Such is the sad reversal we often find in life that those arrested are far more righteous than those coming to do the arresting. If you would turn for a moment to the letter of 1 Peter, which Peter did write, keep your finger in Acts and go towards the back of your New Testaments and go to 1 Peter, I'm going to give you a glimpse of what I think Peter and John were thinking about because Peter wrote this and so I'm thinking he was thinking about it. I don't know for sure, but this is truth that he learned and maybe he was thinking about this now. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 13 to 17. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 to 17. And listen to what Peter writes about this kind of persecution. Verse 13, he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And you don't normally see good people getting harmed. But then he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are, what do you have there in your translation? Blessed. That's what I got in my translation. It says blessed in mine. Does it say blessed in yours? It does, doesn't it? It doesn't say cursed. Anybody have cursed? Does anybody have cursed in their translation? It's just blessed. I'm in jail for Jesus and I'm blessed. That's what he was thinking. And John. And then he goes on, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Were they anxious? Were they worried? No. But what do we do in verse 15? This is a great apologetics verse. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Remember we said you got to get prepared for persecution. That's what you have to do. Christ is my Lord. Christ is my Lord. I serve Christ. When they come at me, that doesn't change. I serve Christ. Get prepared now. Put on the full arm of God now. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Then what? always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. They were not going to rail at the authorities. They were not going to curse at them. They were going to give them respect because of their position. 
And then he goes on, verse 16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which they slandered, in, you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, verse 17, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Then it goes on to Christ's example. He's the perfect example. In fact, back in chapter 2, it says, Christ, while suffering, he uttered no threats. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. What was he doing? What was in the mind of Christ? What was he thinking when this was so unfair? And the answer is there. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. These jokers in front of me are not going to judge me rightly. So I will keep entrusting my soul to the one who judges rightly. And he'll take care of the fools in front of me. That's what they're thinking. That's what we should be thinking if this happened. They kept a clear conscience. They did what was right. They prepared to give an answer inside of them. The Holy Spirit worked in them so that the words would come out right. Great speech by Peter. (laughs) He's like, in a sense, we want to be proud of Peter and then remember it's all the work of God's grace. We're like, wow, this guy's gone from foot and mouth like 10,000 times, and now he's this great spokesman for Christ, work of the Holy Spirit, work of maturity in his life. But what also happened is the church in Jerusalem heard about what happened to Peter and John. Remember, there's many hundreds and thousands of people in the church in Jerusalem. They're not in jail, but Peter and John, they're the first ones to go into jail. And the rest of them are like, it's that moment like, what? Yeah, Peter and John. Must have spread like wildfire. What are they going to do? Everyone's going to be thinking now about Peter and John. Their example is not just themselves. They're in prison. No one can see them maybe prison except for, you know, the the guy in charge of the prison. But they knew their example was going to matter. They knew people would hear about it. They knew they needed to stand for Christ because it was going to help other people in their faith as well. They understood that. These church leaders practiced what they preached. Their character and faith was tried and true. And look at their fruit. We'll close with this, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message, so we kind of go outside of the jail now, back to the effects in the temple. You're wondering what happened back there. It tells us, many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, some debate, is this just the males? But back in chapter 1 and verse 16, the same word includes the females that are counted there as well, so it's likely including men and women. The 5,000 figure itself has also been debated. What does that mean? Does that mean there were 5,000 people saved in this one sermon? That's possible from the words, but it appears it's more likely what Luke is doing is giving the, the growing figure of the number of members and people in the church of Jerusalem. If you follow through in Acts, you see that Luke had this propensity to, to mark out and to show the growth of the church in Jerusalem. For example, back in Acts 1.15, Luke wrote that there were 120 people gathered before the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, just 120. But then Peter preaches his first sermon, and then in Acts 2.41, it's given that there are now some 3,000 people in the church, major, huge jump, many converts there in that first sermon. We come to Acts chapter 4, verse 4, he says 5,000. That probably shows the growth from 3,000 to 5,000, meaning that there were maybe a few hundred, maybe as many as 1,000 that believed here. Remember, if you go back to chapter 2, it says the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. So some were being saved in bulk and some were being saved trickling along the way. 
By the time you go to Acts chapter 21 and 20, Luke is still counting, but it's a little bit hard to count. And so there he says of the church in Jerusalem, many thousands were in the church. Many thousands, beyond 5,000. What does that mean? We don't know, but many thousands. Please note again how the Holy Spirit is pleased with this mile marker of the growth of the church. Luke finds it important to recognize the spread of the gospel and the enormous number of Jews that were believing in Jesus. For that growth, Jews believing in Jesus, that growth added credibility to the Christian historic faith. It shows the work of the Holy Spirit runs along the line of the church and the church grew and the numbers grew and that was a good thing. Here, the mission of the church Jesus gave to them is going forth. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. And implied in that is he was going to supply his power. The Holy Spirit would come. They'd be empowered with that witness. And that means the witness would be effective. And so documenting the growth and the success of that is part of documenting the truthfulness of Jesus Christ and his church. Listen, beloved. The Bible teaches that church growth is a positive occurrence. Many Jews believed. That's a good thing. This first church, this mother church was a mega church. That was God's will for this church. That is what the Holy Spirit testified for this church. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. It was a work that glorified God and glorified Christ. And the people were rejoicing as the church grew. They wanted the church to grow. Not all good churches will be that size or even one-tenth of that size. But sometimes the Lord God raises up Large churches, churches of size and of impact so that they will reverberate through a region and impact an entire region. As we trek through the book of Acts, we will see that is exactly what happened with this church at Jerusalem. The most influential church in the book of Acts was the church of Jerusalem, a very large church, a very well-equipped and taught church that was able to export the gospel to other places. They had a super impact on the whole course of church history, not just the first hundred years. And that is presented as a model, a large church that is a model that impacts. It's not saying it's the will of God for every church. It's not commanded. This is history. But it's a positive model that is given. Here, this entirely Jewish megachurch with, as far as we know, zero Gentiles in it at this stage, all believed Yeshua is the resurrected Mashiach, the Messiah. And they believed in his power to heal and his power to save from sins. A very large church. But listen, God didn't want there to be one very large church. A very large church wasn't the Lord's goal in the Great Commission. The gospel was meant, even though it was exploding in Jerusalem, the gospel was meant to go beyond Jerusalem and explode in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what Jesus wanted. He wanted there to be millions. He wanted great numbers in his church. The Father had planned to give him tens, if not hundreds of millions of followers. And here we begin to see that God allows persecution even to a large, thriving, influential church because even what was going on there wasn't good enough. Greater growth would happen when this church would be struck, the spread of the gospel would even multiply more greatly than what had happened in Jerusalem. This is another great theme in the book of Acts. The more the church was suppressed and oppressed, the more it it snuck out the boundaries and it just kept exploding. You couldn't contain it. You kept trying to 
package it in there. And everyone said, let's just contain this. And there was no way to do that. In fact, the more they tried, the worse it got from, from their perspective. Why does God allow persecution? Because persecution draws attention to the true faith. Those being persecuted, they look in the eyes of the persecutors and they say, yes, I do believe Jesus was risen from the dead and that he is Lord and that he is king. Do what you will. And people look at that and they're like, whoa, what? That doesn't sound like some religion they just picked up from their parents. It sounds like they believe that. There must be something to it. That's why God allows it. They You don't see that kind of conviction from Buddhists. You see their mind wiped away. You don't see that kind of conviction from cultists. They just chant. They don't know what they're talking about. You don't see that kind of conviction from nominal Christians. It's just, this is who they are. But when someone's persecuted, you say, that guy's a Christian. That gal's a Christian. Look at them. The imprisonment of the apostles, that what happened again and again could never imprison the word of God. How do you lock up the word of God? Burn the Bibles, forbid people to speak in the name of Jesus. It only spreads faster. That's what Paul said when he was about to have his head chopped off. What gave him comfort in his last epistle that he wrote, 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, he told Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the imprisonment as a criminal. And then he ends that verse, but the word of God is not imprisoned. It spreads. And that is what God shows. We are just mouthpieces for the word. We're just servants of the word. We all serve the word of God, and the word of God cannot be imprisoned. And it never has been. And we'll trust God with what he does with this church, whether we're at peace or whether we're attacked. We'll trust that God in his sovereign goodness knows what we need. Amen? Lord Jesus, these are words that are said and they're preached, help us to believe them in our heart and to grow in our faith and our love for you, that our eyes really are on the celestial kingdom and that's all the prize that we ever need. Rid our minds and our heart's desires from all of the things the world says we're supposed to grab in this life to fulfill our bucket list. What an empty life. Help us to live for an everlasting kingdom and an unfading inheritance. For your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name.